What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt and the immense pleasure of sitting down with Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert from the Kaiser Report. Epic episode. Two-hour rip. Not as much Bitcoin talk as you may be expecting. Talk a lot about uh, uh, Wall Street in the 80s. Flanoring. Traveling. Bunch of stuff. Talked about a bunch of stuff. You're gonna hear it. You're gonna hear it. This episode is brought to you by brought to you. Brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App is helping you stack sats. They're helping you sell sats. They're helping you receive sats and sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats. Because sats are the standard. What are what are sats? You may be asking. Sats are short for Satoshis. Satoshi is the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. There are 100 million Satoshis in one whole Bitcoin. You can stack Sats. You get about like 1,700 for them for one cuck buck right now. And guess what? They're about to start airdropping cuck bucks. So I'm not going to be surprised that the, the value of cuck bucks valued in Sats is going to go down significantly. Everybody's getting that $1,400 stimmy. Cash App may even... Uh, Help facilitate that if you're using it as your bank account. They offer account numbers and routing numbers. So uh, maybe you're going to get your, your stimmy check direct deposited into your cash app. And then you could just, you just like eliminating a step. You don't have to send that stimmy from your bank account to the cash app. You can just take it from the cash app and stack sats right away. Uh, they also got their boost program, which is connected with their boost card, which is accepted anywhere. Visa is accepted. Doing great things at the cash app. You can now send Bitcoin to other Cash App users as well. You don't have to just send cash and then they buy Bitcoin. You can send They have a P2P Bitcoin service as well. So go check it out. Download the Cash App if you haven't already. Use the code StackingSats, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10 and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. This episode is also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to help you freaks. Make sure you don't have to send your Bitcoin. Send your Bitcoin. You can send your Bitcoin. But if you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, Hoddle Hoddle is here with their new Lend product. Lended Hoddle Hoddle is a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. You meet at the Lended Hoddle Hoddle platform. Uh, if you're short funds... You don't want to sell your Bitcoin. You want to get some liquidity by borrowing. You use your Bitcoin as collateral. You put it in a multi-sig escrow. You always have one key, so you have control. There's no KYC, no AML. You're meeting with a peer on the platform, uh, and you don't have to entrust anybody with your funds. Again, you have one key in the multi-sig escrow. Your collateral always remains locked in that escrow. There's no rehypothecation or anything. Uh, and then you, you put your Bitcoin up, you get some stable coins back, some liquidity, and go spend that as you wish, as long as you're paying back the loan that you engaged in with your counterpart, you're going to keep your sats. Also, if you have stable coins laying around, you're looking to earn returns on those. Lend at Hoddle Hoddle offers uh, the ability to do so. You can get um, you can get a return on those those stable coins, but you put it up on the other side, you lend them out, and you get a return. So create your offers and set your own terms. Use the properties of Bitcoin, the native properties of Bitcoin at lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L dot C-O-M. Go check out the episodes we've recorded with Max Keaton and Roman. 
why they're building hodl hodl how they're building it and how they're again leveraging bitcoin's native properties lend.hodlhodl.com last but not least is also brought to you by our good friends at compass mining they want to make sure the little guy can get him to mining with as little friction as possible all right they're they're locking down uh hosting uh hosting uh locations they're, they're getting access to little guy to these hosting locations at a competitive power costs. So what you do is you go to compassmining.io, that's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Uh, you, Compass is going to help you acquire a miner. They're going to help you find a hosting uh, location. Then they're going to get the miner, send it to the hosting location. The hosting location is going to plug it in, and you're going to be hashing. So you're going to be able to stack sats, DCA, via mining, via compassmining.io. All right, they, they really want to make sure that the, the decentralization of hash production is getting down to the granular individual users. So again, they're obfuscating all the hard work that goes into getting a miner, finding uh, a place to keep that miner at a, at a competitive uh, power cost, um, and they're making it easy. They have customer service. They're, they're going to keep you aware of how many sats you're stacking via your, your miner. It's an incredible thing. Incredible thing to see. Again, compassmining.io. C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. I can spell. Uncle Marty can spell. Enjoy this episode with Max and Stacy. It was a uh, really good rip. Really good rip. Learned a lot about Max Kaiser and Stacy Herbert and their journey. It's an interesting journey. Go on a journey, freaks. Don't get stuck in the cube. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. It doesn't need to be that way. Just follow follow your itch and try to scratch that itch. That's what I learned from this episode, at least. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. One. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Tuesday afternoon for podcast that's long overdue. I can't believe it's taken me this long to, to make this happen, considering the uh, the power couple I'm sitting down with, Stacey Herbert and Max Kaiser. Number one, welcome to the podcast, guys. Yeah. I'm so happy this to be, be here. Cool, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm happy to have you guys. And again, like I was saying before we hit record, I hit... Um, I picked a particular green screen background that reminds me of uh, how I was introduced to you guys or what uh, drove me to the Kaiser report, particularly about 10, 11 years ago now at this point, which is Occupy Wall Street and trying to think about what, what we could talk about here on this particular episode. I know you guys are crushing it with the Orange Pill podcast and we're talking about a lot of current events going on in the Bitcoin space, but I think um, just out of uh, sort of personal uh, selfishness, maybe uh, I'd love to speak with you guys about what's happened since Occupy Wall Street. Again, I was 
17 in the, the fall of 2008 when when the system collapsed and then went to college with a sort of know your or with a try to learn about your enemy mindset and that's why I studied economics and while I was in college I I stumbled into the Kaiser report and you guys speaking passionately about the the problems with Wall Street and society at large and um and I think it's safe to say that the the ideas that you incepted in my mind back then also helped me be open to Bitcoin and accepting the Bitcoin when I finally found it. And I think, uh, I think it'd be interesting to see what you guys think retrospectively about the, the sort of atmosphere during that era compared to today. Now that Bitcoin's a bit more mature and actually gives us, uh, gives us the power to, to fight back potently against wall street. Right. Well, I, yeah, I like it to, to, to revisit Occupy Wall Street. And we were covering it at the time. And um, it was intriguing because all of the various activist groups around the world seemed to figure out that the source of a lot of the problems come from Wall Street. And, uh, you know, we were following the anti-globalization protests in various cities around the world. And uh, then they had the whole occupation going on right there downtown near Wall Street in New York, and it just generated so much momentum. But like all protest, because it doesn't get into money itself, it kind of dies before it starts. And so when Bitcoin came around, we were really intrigued by it because it would attack and transform redefine the very thing that's at the root of of all of uh societal pressures and conflicts and that's that's the money itself and and um what would you add well i would say that when i first met max in 2003 in the south of france his background was not only with the hollywood stock exchange but he had been a banker and you know was a stand-up comedian as well so he's funny he's telling these stories and he's telling me about his days on Wall Street. And to me, who I had, I was uh, somebody who worked in Hollywood, worked on scripts, worked on stories. And, you know, Aristotle is, his poetics is what everybody in Hollywood uses as a, the foundation of a good story. And essentially the, the, the good guy has to win in the end after all the trials and tribulations. So when Max was telling me all this stuff about what happens on Wall Street, I was like, no way right? This, this can't possibly happen. And then I started, cause he reads every morning, the financial times, I started reading it and I would be like, Oh my God, Max, look, it's right here on the front page. And you said this <clears throat> and you said this. And, uh, he was like, yeah. So I became as a storyteller, just fascinated that all of this stuff was going on right in front of our faces. And like, it's actually talked about in the wall street journal and the financial times and the economist. And if everybody wake up, just go read it. It's right there. So, you know, we were talking about it. We started our first podcast in 2003 before they were even called podcasts before the RSS2 feed was available. And we were talking about the things that we would read in The Economist or the Financial Times. And so we were already there talking about this stuff. And then the banking system collapsed. And we, um, 
we just got calls from the BBC, especially constantly calling Max, like Max is the only person we were, we were making a series for at that time we had made for Al Jazeera English. We made 10 films about uh, the financial system, basically Max on camera and talking about how this was, was all going to collapse. And we made a 10 part series for BBC world. So all of a sudden, like literally Max and I were the only people in international television that had even suggested this could happen, like that this was like to the root sort of fraud going on through the entire financial system. So Max became very in demand to go on these news programs. And uh, yeah, and that Occupy Wall Street just, mm. you know, yeah. Yeah, that 2008 crisis. So it was a credit freeze and it was a global systemic financial crisis, the global financial crisis. And uh, how it was, um, what, what, were, what were the reactions from the policymakers in Washington and around the world were, were very interesting. And we traveled around to different countries like Greece, for example, and Ireland, where the, and, and Iceland, where the crisis was playing out in different ways. And um, the most interesting thing, you know, is that the response ultimately by policymakers was not to bail out the debtors who had been fraudulently sold these subprime mortgages and so much other financial garbage, but to bail out the creditors, you know, bail out the banks on Wall Street that had sold all this garbage that created the problem. And of course, uh, the way they did that is just to expand their credit lines so that they could just keep doing exactly what they were doing, but 10, 20, 30 times more leveraged. And that's where we are today. So the crisis now that we see kind of unfolding around the world is really part two of the 2008 crisis. And it was very predictable to say, well, this is just going to happen, but much bigger in 10 or 12 years time. And that's kind of what's happening. So um, in, in all that comes Bitcoin and Bitcoin has this remarkable story. And um, one of the things recently, Christine Lagarde said she referred to, and I believe she's running the ECB now, uh, she, re she called Bitcoin an escape valve. You know, she was saying that in, in the context of they need to, you know, get uh, tamp it down they need to regulate it we can't um, have an escape valve she's kitchen. saying the people can't, can't have, have one right and um you know that's a remarkable statement uh because we know a couple of things number one you can't stop it and number two all this capital that's flowing into it now is for that very reason people are escaping the serial uh bailouts the serial money printing the serial cr criminal behavior uh, and and this is attracting now over a trillion and since there's hundreds of trillions of funny money, and she actually used the term funny money as well to describe a Bitcoin, but she should have been talking about fiat money. So the upside is remarkable. It's, and, and now we're at that inflection point where suddenly everyone figures out that, oh, oh my gosh, we do have an escape valve. Yeah, and again, you know, going back to Aristotle's uh, story, you know, the, the, the how to tell a good story, it ties back to this because, you know, the financial collapse happens and the bad guy's winning. The bad guy gets the TARP bailout, they get all the quantitative easing, they get all this free money, the wealth gap explodes, and then Bitcoin comes along. And that is the end of the story, essentially. The good guy actually has one. And of course, interestingly, we still refer to Aristotle in terms of money, what makes a good money. So uh, it, it, it's interesting that, it, you know, my background was storytelling. 
Max's is as well, but also money. So Aristotle is always there at the mm -hmm. center of all of this. And Aristotle, his ideas were very important to the Renaissance, which is important to how we think on Orange Pill Podcast. So it's all full circle. And I think the good guy wins at the end, mm -hmm. like it's supposed to happen. All right. I guess that's, that's the important question. Have we won? Has Bitcoin won in your mind? Is it inevitable? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think Bitcoin is clearly crossing the, the, the finish line and getting the checkered flag. And um, it's, it achieved escape velocity. It achieved escape velocity a few years ago, really. You, you remember back to the 2009 and 2011 period, Pete Rizzo did a great story on Bitcoin Magazine about this, where there was still some tweaking going on to the protocol and um, the, the right people made the right choices at that time. And so starting from 2011 through 2017, you had the story, a great growth story, adoption story. Then we had the block wars of 2017 and segue to 2017. And um, that was when you hit escape velocity, essentially, when we got through that. And that is when Michael Saylor cites, you know, what was instrumental in his decision to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet of MicroStrategy is that he observed how the, quote, cyber hornets, as he calls them, are in charge and the resiliency of this thing. And he had looked at Bitcoin in 2013 and didn't get it or didn't like it or just never really sat down with it. But by 2017, he came back and um, uh, did the deep dive and he and Paul Tudor Jones kicked off this institutional wave. And you see a Coinbase, for example, the Coinbase in the last 12 to 18 months went from predominantly retail focused to predominantly institutional focused. So, you know, people are showing up at Coinbase and buying half a billion to a billion at a clip, right? And the market's now gone institutional. You've got global markets now, this, Norwegian big conglomerate buying into it. And um, the demand is is just incredible on the demand side. And, the, and on the supply side, we know that it's restricted. So I, yeah, I think we fit escape velocity. I think we're, we have to prepare now for a very, very different world. You know, this is the first change in base layer money in thousands of years. So this is gonna be a really interesting story. I think also like beyond escape velocity, it's like a lot of people use that analogy of the black hole. And I do think we have passed an event horizon and it has happened since 2017. It, it, there's no specific date, but I mean, just look at the fact of, you know, if you were, I don't know when you got involved with Bitcoin, but just the conversations and the people and the content how it's changed the since those early days and the past year or two that it's entered the consciousness of many people around the world and it's uh, feeding off each other and it's uh, you could see it just has grown to the point that it can't be stopped because it's altered consciousness in a way of those epochal changing moments like when we exit the dark ages into the renaissance when we enter the enlightenment once you have those ideas in the head and and too many people have those they've shifted their consciousness like how do you go back to thinking of the divine right of kings for example like it, it's just it's over once it's over it's over so 
it's, I think that's the success. It's like, there's no stopping it now because you could do all you want. Like Nigeria can try to stop their citizens from being able to use their fiat to convert to Bitcoin. But there's been an explosion in uh, purchase and getting Bitcoin in Nigeria since then, right? Like the, the, they, they've seen the freedom. They know what it is. That and I think right. I just saw something come across my tweet deck about like the, the central bank trying to bribe uh, citizens to, to convert Naira to dollars and they're going to give them more dollars to Naira, excuse me, and they're going to get more Naira. Um, <laughs> right. So the way the central banks are fighting it is by printing more, which of course makes Bitcoin go up, which makes the central banks more redundant, which makes them panic print and which makes Bitcoin go up. So we're, we're in this virtuous cycle now. The only thing they can do is print. That's the only thing they can do. And that's the one thing that makes the price go up. Yeah. And there's, so there's a couple of things I want to touch on. Going back to Stacy's comments about like the education in the space. And again, God, there's so many ways I want to take this. You guys have been working on Bitcoin education for, for quite some time, far longer than I have. I was a lurker back in the day. Like 2013, 2014, 2015, 2015, 2016, particularly that bear market was was dark times, dark winter. Uh, again, I was just lurking, but I had my Bitcoin list on Twitter and was following everybody in the space. I was like, man, this is pretty depressing. Like people actually thought Bitcoin could have died, especially when it dove down to like $180. Um, and compare that to bear market of 2018, 2019, early 2020, and it's just complete completely different like a, a bunch of content creators a bunch of education and i think what really validates that and, and the efforts that people yourselves included putting uh, putting in on the content education side is is again bringing it back to acre group's announcement yesterday i think the the base layer of knowledge is so much higher than it was back in the day like they get it like they get that jack mollers is innovating in a way that nobody is thinking about they get that KYC AML regulations are ineffective and, and there's ways to do it correctly and Bitcoin shouldn't be thrown out. The baby that is Bitcoin shouldn't be thrown out with the bathwater because it's hard to enforce KYC AML regulations on. Um, you, you have people like the individuals at NYDIG who just raised a bunch of money right now investing in companies like Unchained Capital building products that leverage Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. It seems like uh, the class of investor and a lot of people were scared of in Bitcoin, frankly, for some time, like, oh, we don't want them to come in. They're going to bastardize it. They're sort of being like, hey, like we understand how this works and how game changing this is, which is a huge shift in perception uh, from bear market and two bear markets ago. Well, that shift in perception, look at those points I'm talking about in history and, you know, Western societies, you have the enlightenment. It's not just one guy, is it? It's a bunch of philosophers suddenly, like they were feeding off each other. Their ideas triggered other ideas, triggered other ideas. And it became, uh, you could see the velocity gain from like the 1730s, 40s, 50s. And then it, it just accelerated into a huge uh, cathartic moment. Same thing with a similar situation perhaps in the renaissance where um okay what didn't end in like revolution like that but it did end in a revolution scientific revolution in the revolution of art and discovery so 
again, it's not just you can't point to one individual that is the the person of the Renaissance or the person of the Enlightenment. It was many people, and I think the you know the twenty. 1920 and 2021 now, you know, the, I think there are a lot of thinkers, a lot of content creators, a lot of technologists and, and coders and, and people involved in Bitcoin that are all inspired by each other and thus uh, in turn creating more inspirational thought on their own. Right. Remember in the Genesis block, it's a chance they're on verge of second bailout for banks. So that played into what we had been doing for years. And, and really attacking the central banks. So during the early years when there was the 90% the, the drawdowns on Bitcoin, where my faith in the protocol may have var varied or, or, or strayed, my utter hatred of central banks <laughs> never went away. <laughs> and, and that's what kept me going through the dark days. You know, people say that you, you I, they say, you know, you scream a lot, you're very angry all the time. And and so I've often thought that I'm trying to get across that it's okay to be angry because it's there's something that's worth being angry about. And as angry as I am and as I appear to be, let's talk about Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the silver bullet. And so that's been going on you know it's interesting in 2021 since we have some we, and we were the only ones doing bitcoin content i would say from 2011 12 13 14. like regularly you could see our series to the moon where we cover the first 10 years and there's almost no other content those first few years there were you know some podcasts uh, and blogs i suppose but uh yeah it that. wasn't until i think segwit in 2017 really had um World Crypto Network with Tone Bays and the Vortex and some other folks, they they kind of took this Bitcoin content to a level that was better for, let's say, millennials. Mm -hmm. Because after all, I'm a boomer, Stacy's an Xer, and Bitcoin is a millennial phenomenon. So that was 2017 is when millennials kind of said, you know, the doing content related to Bitcoin, that was more specific to millennials. And it just was, a great, you know, it was fantastic in a lot of ways. And now, uh, you know, three or four years later, you know, it's only gotten better and better. And um, so I'm, I'm more in the position of watching other people do content, you know, because I'm learning a lot about this next generation. This millennial generation is, um, it's there, they are reshaping things. And so like, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's going to school on them now, basically, because they, they, it's their native currency. For me, it was not a native currency. I can, I got a background in finance and technology, but I wasn't born into Bitcoin the way the millennials are, are basically born into it. So there's something to really see about or look about. That. Well, there, there's a deeper understanding, obviously, that they arrive with. So back in 2011, 12, 13, yeah, there were there were no blogs, no posting. Like there was there was no Bitcoin Twitter. There was just nowhere to really go to try to understand. You just saw prices move. You saw you know random events. Mostly like it would erupt out of like rage quitting from a Bitcoin core dev, and a fight spills out into Twitter 
which wasn't so advanced, but you know, like it wasn't robust back then in terms of the conversation going on. There was no telegram. There weren't these groups uh, talking and discussing and, you know, the, 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 those sort of cafe, you know, uh, uh, needed for enlightenment, revolution, all these ideas, people meet and they talk and they discuss. So we were kind of feeling in the dark of like, what is it? And, you know, when, when people like Mike Hearn and all those people were rage quitting, you know, as, as a journalist, you're just like, well, okay, we're, you know, we're entertainers, we're reporting and these are mysterious Bitcoin core guys over there and they're saying it's going to die. And like, you're, you, you don't really know where to go to have a conversation of like, is this going to die? <laughs> like, it just yeah. seems a bit <laughs> scary at the time. You're like, okay. also, um, our friends then get arrested at JFK airport and you're like, is this illegal what we're talking about? Like what's mm -hmm. going on? Yeah. That was scary too. <laughs> the Charlie Shrem bit. Yeah. 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 Suddenly. Cause we were, we were really actually quite concerned. <laughs> yeah. Cause as Max said, like we were the, we were really pushing it on global television. Remember our yeah. show is broadcast all over the world. And so 2011, 2012, 2013, and then, um, Ross Ulbricht gets arrested. Charlie Shrem gets arrested. And we were afraid to fly into JFK. We were like, well, like, are we talking about something illegal? Like, yeah, we were we genuinely <laughs> frightened. And then uh, some officer did stop you because you were taking a photo of something on the wall, <laughs> yeah. which apparently is illegal to do. And so this cop came over to stop Stacy, and we're like, oh, this is it. We're Homeland going. Security <laughs> guy. Yeah, it's all over. And then he's just like, you can't take a photo in here. We're like, oh, okay, fine. That's but it. Uh, it was tense. It's a tense environment. Um, at that time yes yeah it's a it was a tense environment well that's like another thing i wanted to touch on like again i was young you know, the kaiser report started what september 2009 yes um yeah. i don't i don't think i found it until like 2010 2011 when i started working in finance and i was like a naive young 19 20 year old at the time and i'm at my desk watching like rt and you guys are spitting out like stuff like information that i can't get uh, anywhere else and speaking about things in a way that nobody else is speaking that really resonated and make made sense to me and again like i was naive and they, they, some like old head in the office walks by and like sees me watching kaiser report on rt he's like oh you're watching that russian propaganda i'm like what, what are you talking about like i'm just watching max and stacy talk sense here like and i not like and so there's this this program perception of what are good information sources and what are not in in general society and and again you guys had to fight against that too i imagine that that weird perception yeah, definitely of being oh yeah mm -hmm. totally totally and you know first of all working making our show for rt actually we make it for associated press who then sells it to rt so we mm -hmm. don't even talk to them it's like working for youtube we also upload our orange pill podcast show to youtube um Sergey Brin doesn't call me, doesn't give me notes on anything. Same thing with a uh, Kaiser report. We just upload it. So even when, when everybody was getting arrested and the Senate hearing started in the end of 2013 or 20, yeah, 2013 about whether or not Bitcoin is shit is for drug dealers and, and terrorists. That was the first Senate hearings somewhere between 2013 and early 2014. And, um, I was wondering, like, is does you know RT have any position about the fact that they're like the most prominent pusher of uh, of Bitcoin content? But at the end of the day, you know, uh, we've always like whatever network we've worked with is we well we started down the road of of only really talking to heterodox thinkers because one thing like for me personally, I 
you know, you tune into Bloomberg or CNBC, who are the guests? All the same, right? They're always like prominent, like it's like the Paul Krugmans of the world and they give them loads of voice, loads of airtime. So I always found it, like when we first did the BBC World Show, they wanted us to get people like that. And I'm like, somebody could go tune into you know, CNBC and see Paul Krugman. Why did they need to tune in to us to see it? Like, I want to talk to like interesting people. I remember blogs are pretty big back then. So they're not so big anymore. But back then, like, I'd be like, I want to talk to these guys at Zero Hedge. Like, these, like, I like their stuff. So we've always talked to those heterodox thinkers. And because of that, it led us to Bitcoin. Uh, we were forced to do heterodox thinkers when we start. we were working for Al Jazeera English. So we were their launch week of Al Jazeera English. Remember at that time, we had just done the invasion uh, of Iraq in 2003. Al Jazeera English announced they were gonna launch in 2005. And so they co contacted us to do a, a, a short documentary for them about any topic we wanted. And it was called Death of the Dollar, okay? So that was the first documentary we made for them. And um, Right then, when we booked all our guests, we were planning on doing this film, and then all of our guests bailed because on the front page of every single newspaper around the world, Bush and Blair had almost decided to bomb Al Jazeera. So people were like, we don't want to come on Al Jazeera. <laughs> so um, you know who was willing to come on? All the libertarians and gold bugs. They were like, oh yeah, I don't care. <laughs> mm. You know, down with the government. I don't care. Like, uh, you know, uh, we're anti-war and forget it. So we went down that road. Mm -hmm. Right. No, not like, thank you for doing that. Right. Cause you, you brought, I was just searching. I remember his name, great, like Charles Hugh Smith from the of two minds blog, like having him on and, and having read his blog and really having that information resonate with me too. It just makes a lot of sense. And you see everybody's being paraded on the CNBCs, the Bloomberg's, the BBC. It's like, are they really talking about this? Problem? And then like, we can get it to tinfoil hat theories. Like, are they trying to program a certain narrative into the masses? And, and well, we, one, one thing that we saw, which is interesting, is really the birth of global, in, international, English-speaking, 24-hour news channels in other countries. So CNN introduced this concept. Then Al Jazeera over there in Qatar figured out that, you know, we're going to do a 24-hour English-speaking news to give our perspective. And this was during, I think, Gulf War One when it rolled out. And it was a big success. And so now countries around the world have rolling 24-hour news in English. And so we've, we've worked with many of them and we've traveled all over the world. So what's interesting is that because all of these channels are speaking in English about the same stories, the, in the U.S., to, to the extent that the U.S. media tries to shape stories from the American perspective, it, it became much diff, more difficult to do so because instead of saying like having somebody speaking a foreign language in the background and then you putting in the dubbed version in English and then commenting it on English and then interpreting what was just said to somebody who doesn't understand that other language, it's coming through in English. So now to shape that news, you saw in the US, they had to amp the, con the conspiracy angle to things in order to overcome the fact that all everything is in English now so that the average viewer 
would can see quite plainly have their own opinion form an opinion for themselves based on everyone speaking on this so now so this is what we've seen over the last five or six years is that this uh, in the u.s is this um trend toward um going into a hyper hyper hyperbolic frenzy of of paranoia right so they've got to push that paranoia like even though it's in english you can't believe the words that you're hearing in your ear. Don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your ears. Listen to us. I'm I'm MSNBC, and I'm going to tell you what's really going on. And so in order to pull that off, they've got to whip out the most arcane Byzantine conspiracy nonsense. Everyone's become Alex Jones, effectively. Alex Jones really was on the vanguard of his form of journalism which is hyperbolic conspiracy theories 90% of the time and 10% facts. And so they took him off the air and then people like Rachel Maddow and others became, they stole Alex Jones act. So then now when you watch the news, you watch cable news, you see hysterical paranoia and conspiracy theories with a little fact sprinkled in to get over the fact that without them, without these cable presenters at all, people would simply be able to get the news directly into their ears and eyes with an English-speaking correspondent all over the world. So th that's what we've seen. Also, of course, behind you, you have Occupy Wall Street, and that is RT was nominated for an Emmy for that because they were the only ones covering it. CNN didn't cover it. Uh, MB NBC, CBS, MSNBC did not cover it, even though they're based there in New York. They, were, they covered it a little bit, but um, RT covered it extensively. So, you know, you're allowed to cover things that you can't cover on, you know, against ads, you know, for Raytheon. <laughs> you know, that's who sponsors Rachel Maddow's show. And, you know, uh, Raytheon doesn't want to see that uh, against their ads. They're not going to spend half a million dollars on an ad on your program, if if you're talking about Occupy Wall Street, a socialist, they're gonna say like it's anti it's anti capitalist, right? Even though it's it's obviously pro capitalist, it's, it's saying down with this crony capitalism and this socialism for the rich. Yeah, and it's now I'm getting heated here. It's like disgusting, right? It's like the <laughs> warmongering party, like having a a, a loudspeaker through which to speak through and people take it hook line and sinker they see the msnbc the cnn at the bottom right hand of the corner and they're like hey this is the news these are the facts and like right. again like people are like max and stacy russian russian propaganda agents like ah but like if you actually like listen it, it, it's just it's all done in an effort to just prevent people from even listening in the first place and that's 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 what we always say actually we say we're kai's report we totally 100% encourage you to go watch CNN, go watch MSNBC, read the Washington Post and New York Times and see what they're saying about this and then compare it to what we're saying. Just like make your own informed opinion. They don't want you to be able to see us. That is a truth that they're trying to hide, uh, like prevent people from even seeing us or listening to us, even though we were right about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. We were right about the financial catastrophe that did unfold. We were right about the Cantillon effect. Even now, the head of the New York Fed, John Williams, just said last week, he said he admits that there is some uh, basically Cantillon effect happening from all the quantitative easing. We said that years ago. And now, all you know, had you 
watched Rachel Maddow, she's only going to talk to Paul Krugman, who's going to tell her, definitely you need to keep printing money because we need to get this money into the into the hands of the poor people. Today, there's a report out from government officials are concerned about house prices rising by 14% a year, pushing further and further, mm-hmm. uh, more and more black people and minorities and women out of the housing market. And you're like, Yes, the money printing is causing the house That's prices to rise. You send them a a thousand dollar check, and it pushes them thirty thousand dollars away from the house price. Like it, it's it's costing them more every time you print it. Right. Plus, we have twelve year track record of making all these forecasts and this analysis, where an an inordinate amount of it has been proven correct, and so it's very difficult even to criticize our work at this point because we've got this amazing track record of having predicted so much of what was going to happen and and so uh, and then add bitcoin to that and it's really it's 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 fuck you journalism because you know we've been saying not only are we been right for 12 years but we're stinking rich now so go fuck yourself and, and that's my message to all these other cable news presenters and podcasters and anybody else who wants to challenge me because just look at the history you know and if you, if you have the balls to look at the history, you know, look at it and, and, and you'll start puking up, you know, chunks because you're a moron. So other than that, I'm fine. It goes this back off- longer than that, Max. Like the, uh, I forget who shared it on Twitter a couple months ago, but your interview, I believe it was after the crash of 87, calling out the uppies. Like, and- oh, yeah, that's right. I was working on Wall Street at the time. That was 1987. So I'd already been a stockbroker for almost five years. So I was a veteran stockbroker at the age of 27 and the crash happened and um, I was out in the street um, doing that interview with the Dan Rather CBS Evening News. And um, it was clear to me at that time that the system uh, was the way it is. It, it's it's really quite ugly. Um, and. So I, I, after in 1990, I, I, uh, I left Wall Street and I moved to Paris and I lived in Paris for five years, just kind of as a bohemian doing, just soaking up the culture. But, but, um, but tell them, I mean, that's where it all started. 87, the intervention by the, Alan Greenspan and Robert Rubin and, uh, well, Bill, and well, I love that interview, particularly just like, good, get the yuppies out of here. Yeah. yeah well, the only, the only thing we did was get rid of the yuppies. But that crash <laughs> was the end of any sort of pretense of free markets here. Right. Like, because the, the plunge protection team was created, uh, because of that. Right. They, yeah. So the, the, the treasury buys stocks to prevent that from ever happening. Yeah, they, the plunge protection team. So what happened was discount brokerage arrived in America on Wall Street. I guess Charles Schwab was really the biggest and the first to, to get into this. And Wall Street firms really started to panic because up until then, it was standard commission 40 cents a share, I believe. <laughs> and it was a great job to have. You know, you could literally do absolutely nothing and just make tons and tons of money all day long. And um, so the discounters came in. So Wall Street went into a bit of a, a, a crazed panic introducing products, quote unquote, to compete with the discounters. And also they took firms like Lehman Brothers, who had been around for 140 years, and they turned it into a bucket shop where these brokers were making you know, hundreds of thousands of phone calls a year, rousting up business from people coast to coast. 
and getting them into over-the-counter stocks with huge credits and flipping them. And, and the whole culture became very lurid in many ways. Uh, and back in the 20s in America on Wall Street, there were guys who sat in small rooms on telephones trying to get people to buy stocks. And because it was so noisy in that room, they wore buckets on their heads. And that is the beginning of the term bucket shop. So a bucket shop, that's where it started. I never knew that. Yeah, this high pressure Wall Street pitch. So so, th so then that kind of spilled over into the Reagan era because Mike Deaver, who was one of his closest advisors, came from Merrill Lynch. And he really set the agenda for the um, deregulations that came under the Reagan years, which it, it set the stage for repealing all the safeguards that were put in place after the 29 crash. So the Securities Act of 33 and 34 really totally re-architected Wall Street and got rid of 98% of all the criminal behavior that was going on. But Mike Deaver and Reagan, they started to repeal everything. Uh, and then during Clinton, they got rid of Glass-Steagall. Uh, they got rid of the uh, top tick, the sh uh, short sell rules. Uh, they got rid of everything. So by, by the time Obama entered office in the global financial crisis, that was an amazing period where Hank Paulson sat in Congress with a one sheet of paper and said, we need three quarters of a trillion dollars. And, and, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what we're going to do with the money. Congress said, you know, we need at least a day to think about this. And uh, he was disgusted that they didn't just give him the money that on the spot. Next day, market crashed. And this is a part of the legacy of the plunge protection team is it gave the people on Wall Street the ability to move markets at will and to crash markets whenever they wanted to. So they orchestrated the very handy crash that, the, and then Paulson got his money. And that nearly $1 trillion became 17 to $18 trillion when it's all said and done. It still hasn't done anything to reform the system or b fix the problem that caused that crisis. And here we are in 2021, and the crisis is rolling out, it's happening again, but we have Bitcoin's the escape valve. And, and they, they just don't, they, there's nothing they can do about it. There's no way to attack it. So I've, I've seen this develop really for over 30 years. And I've often thought about the concept of something like a Bitcoin, you know, in my journals and my writings going back 30 years, 35 years, the idea of this, and, and Hayek, of course, spoke about the need for, for separating state from money and this type of thing. And, and so now we're seeing it, we're seeing it happen in real time. And this is just basically like having a front row seat at the sinking of the Titanic. We are literally watching the Titanic of the global fraud crack, break apart and sink to the bottom of the fiat ocean with our own eyes. We are witnessing the greatest spectacular burst of a bubble. That would be the global bond bubble, $200 trillion worth of absolute worthless dog shit is now sinking it's, it's it's on the surface it's cracking the lights are going out they've run out of lifeboats um the, the bow is now underwater and you know we're like two minutes away from from going completely underwater and that's this is it a scary thing or a good thing in your mind or a little bit of both it's beautiful <laughs> it's a beautiful thing you know the way some some things break in beautifully, you know, the, the way, you know, you, 
the, the nature is full of these things. A volcano is destructive, but it's also quite beautiful. You know, the, a, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty and destruction many times go together. The birth of a star, the death of a star. You see, the rebirth um, of a phoenix. The, the phoenix. You see, in, in nature, you know, we, we watch those chases on videos where some animals being chased around and then eventually caught. I mean, it's horrible and animals being uh, killed, right? But nevertheless, it's, it, it's a beautiful uh, in a lot of ways as well. Um, so this is, this is a beautiful, tragic sinking of what was thought to be an unsinkable global bond market. And the same people that went under the tops who were in first class, who thought they were untouchable are, are going to go down with the ship. A few people uh, are going to have Bitcoin and they'll ride into the sunset unscathed and they'll get a good view of one of nature's most spectacular catastrophes. You know, the other interesting thing is a theme we've been talking about for over a decade now, but you're starting to really see the escape valve quality of Bitcoin with the hedge funds and the institutions. Of course, Paul Tudor Jones in the second quarter of last year triggered the stampede into Bitcoin uh, amongst his peers. And the thing about it is Max and I have said, like hedge funds are always there. We're always there to apply honesty to government, right? They were a check on the, the government's ability to print money and the Fed to print money. And that was called the bond vigilante. Max can tell you all about that from the 80s and 90s. Uh, Bill Clinton, his uh, press secretary, one of his aides um, had mentioned like he wanted to, it, when he dies, he wants to be reborn as a, a bond vig, as a bond vigilante because they have so much power because the bond vigilantes prevented Hillary Clinton back in 93 from, from being able to bring about um, you know, universal health care, her, her program that she wanted to introduce then, they, they stopped it. But that bond vigilantes through the interest rate price signal, uh, tell the government, tell investors, okay, the government is out of control, they're printing too much. Um, the Fed destroyed them, okay, annihilated them. You can't be a bond vigilante anymore or else you'll end up, it's, it's called a widow maker because the, the Fed will buy unlimited number of bonds and they'll crush you. So you can't fight them. Yeah, I mean, just last week we had a yield spike scare, mm -hmm. right? Yield spiked and growth stocks sold off. And people were talking about bond prices falling down, right? Then the Australian Central Bank on the Sunday night of last Monday announced, oh, we're going to do some more quantitative easing, effectively. They signaled to the whole world, the other central banks to pile on. And uh, another round of uh, central bank monetization of junk took place to control that interest rate to keep this party going. So there's no checks and balances. So the, the bond vigilantes, the bond market served as a useful purpose to, to keep uh, the business cycle intact so that the weak, weaklings of the capitalist system would get wiped out and there would like a brush fire and make room for the seedlings of new enterprise that, that this is called creative destruction. This is the business cycle. This is capitalism as we know it. They've got winners, you've got losers. 
but by quantitative easing, you've eliminated the possibility of anyone losing. That the banks never lose. They're constantly just milking the system for more free cash. And so that leads to malinvestments, which crowds out enterprise, crowds out new businesses. And you end up with a stagnant economy that's not competitive globally. That's why China is, you know, running, race, away. running away with as the world leading economy with 5G and 6G tel telephony with, um, you know, infrastructure, transportation, all kinds of things that are just leaps and bounds ahead of the U.S. because the U.S. has been mollycoddling and bailing out zombie companies and zombie banks now for 20 years and has put a ceiling in place for new enterprises. With, with a few exceptions, obviously, we've had some great success stories with uh, Amazon and, and Tesla and things like that. But nevertheless, um, but they've destroyed the, the bond market. And that's really, really important to understand. They've destroyed the bond market. There's no reason to participate in the bond market because you're not being compensated for the risk you're taking. And therefore, those investors are going to look elsewhere. And you see that with hedge funds. They're not going to go uh, get crushed by the Fed. They're going to buy Bitcoin instead. It used to be as well. Gold was a way to protect yourself. But, you know, again, they use those futures markets, especially since the Commodity Futures Modern Organization Act, they can create thousands and thousands and thousands of contracts for every single ounce of gold, and they can just crush the price. And, and it, it, it doesn't matter because, you know, they could do that because of the Fed and the Treasury that they own all the gold, right? They have 8,000 tons of gold, so they could, they could help crush the price of gold. So i.e. they don't want any signals they don't want they're they're telling you that's propaganda don't listen to that news don't listen to that price signal don't see that price signal we're going to crush it and we're, you can only see long news go long the stock market go buy more property get leveraged up go into debt get student loans keep on doing that keep our system alive so uh bitcoin is the exit valve for and wall street's seeing that as well yeah that's that's right the, the gold vigilantes got euthanized the bond vigilantes got euthanized and and now bitcoin you know the, the big debate is finally going to be the the realization that bitcoin is not the bubble bitcoin is the pin and more people are figuring that out and as more people figure that out then you have capital pendulum swinging away from everything fiat based to bitcoin and we're seeing that right now. This current price of Bitcoin tells us to some people like myself, I would say the US dollar is in a hyperinflationary collapse against Bitcoin. That's how I see it. And now more and more people are seeing, seeing it that way. So just that shift in perception, if it's uh, like a virus, like a meme, if that catches on and people with lots of money start seeing the, the picture from a different perspective and like any of those optical illusions, you know, they look one way. Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Mm. You know, that, that, that classic one you see online all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a rabbit, it's a duck. And, oh, that means I've got to buy Bitcoin, actually. <laughs> and uh, that's, what hap that's what's happening. It doesn't take much shift in perception, especially in an economy, global economy, that has hundreds of percentage points more debt than, than, G than, than equity. You know, it's incredibly leveraged. You know, we're, we're dancing on the tip of this spinning top of instability. And it, do, it doesn't take much to really sway and wobble and create all kinds of chaos. 
and and this is what's happening. We're living through it. And also in terms of deploying capital and how capital can move markets and thus perceptions, I mean, Max can speak better to this, but if you look at that hedge fund industry and there's 16,000 hedge funds, but there's certain top dogs in that space, right? And, and your fund has to outperform those other funds. You're compared to other funds and other hedge fund managers. So when Paul Tudor Jones comes out like in the second quarter of last year and shocks the world with his amazing statement, still one of the best ever in terms of what he said about Bitcoin and how it's a bet on the future of humanity and human ingenuity compared to gold, especially you're, you're looking at a positive outlook to the future rather than a, you know, a lonely individual, you know, you're all in your own, it's every man for himself sort of outlook for uh, gold. But then, you know, he, he in turn inspired Stan Druckenmiller, who's probably one of the top five most successful hedge fund managers in history. He's never had a down year since 1981. And he recently said that he's very, very short the dollar and long Asia, but long gold and long commodities and long Bitcoin. So, I mean, when he, when these sort of guys are saying this sort of thing, a lot of billions and billions of dollars of capital are listening and they're then changing their perception. And again, that going over the event horizon of that perception, once these guys change their perception about a whole sector, it, there's really no going back. Mm, yeah, that's what's happening for sure. Yeah. It's actually funny we're talking about this perception too, because this morning I was listening to um, one of Adam Carey's podcasts, not No Agenda, but the Mo Facts podcast that he hosts uh, and his co-host Mo, which is, it was like, it made me be like, ah, and this is like an episode from a couple months ago, but he was, he was saying like, ah, oh, yeah, I was going to buy Bitcoin. But then I went to go get my haircut. My barber was asking me if I should buy Bitcoin. And I said, ah, that's, that's a sign that it's like, it's, it's a bubble and I need to get out. And so for the average Joe, and that's like what I th think about a lot with the podcast and the newsletters, how can we articulate to them? Like you can get in on this. Yes. It has gone up insanely. Uh, it is appreciated in value uh, by, by, by an incredible amount in the first 12 years of its existence, but we are still early. Um, you don't have to worry uh, about your your crazy cousin or your barber being into it as well. It's actually a good thing that they are um, to some extent. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's gonna keep on its own vector. You know, it's like there's a bunch of semen in the womb and one of them is gonna fertilize the egg and the rest <laughs> of them are gonna die. You know, we've got millions of people that have heard about Bitcoin. One of, you know, a few of them are going to buy it and the rest are going to die. But that's life. Also, of course, people have unit bias. They don't understand network effect and they don't understand um, institutional money. So, you know, we had people in our Telegram group. We have uh, our Orange Pill Telegram group. And there's now 24,000 people in there. And a lot of people are, you know, just ordinary retail sort of investors. And back in, oh, like September or October, they were like, oh, Bitcoin's now $13,000. Am I too late? It's, it's gone up so much. Um, is it going to crash? What's going on? And right then, Paul Tudor Jones was interviewed on CNBC. And they said, well, you know, Bitcoin's like 13,000 now and you got in at, you know, down at 4,000, 5,000 in, in the spring. Uh, are you thinking it might be a bit frothy? He's like, 
no, I like it better at 13,000 than I liked it at 4,000. Like it's actually better. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I mean, I, I have a hard time getting my head around that is like actually for institutional investors, they like it bigger. They like the number bigger. They like the market cap bigger and they will allocate more money to it. And new all-time highs bring in more money because they prefer a new all-time high. Oh yeah, absolutely. You have uh, institutional money likes to be in, in the company of other institutional money. And that only happens if the asset is large enough to handle that, that size. And so at a trillion dollars, you know, you've got pretty good size now. And um, as it gets to five, ten trillion dollars, it's going to have a percentage allocation to every sovereign wealth fund, every hedge fund, every managed account, every bond account. Right. And there's just so much upside to go, which the, the, the bottom line is that the, as the price is increasing now, the risk goes down. So you still have the upside, but on a risk-adjusted basis, the current price is much more attractive than even when it was at a hundred bucks, because at a hundred bucks, you had a different risk picture than you do now, and you could see on a risk-adjusted basis it was a tough call to go long Bitcoin. But at fifty thousand, it's an easy call to go long Bitcoin because on a risk adjusted basis, you've got some fantastic upside and you've got now very little downside at all. Um, It's less risk in owning Bitcoin today than any time ever in its life, which is what I think most people can't wrap their minds around. It's actually the least risky thing you can, like the guy in Norway said, that the only risk with Bitcoin is not owning it. Right. right. So and that's absolutely correct, given everything that we know that's going on today. And now that battleships and aircraft carriers of institutional money are sailing into the Gulf of Bitcoin and any small carrier of fiat money is going to get blown the fuck out of the water. I love it. And it's I mean, it is, that is becoming a consensus view. It's it's riskier not to have some skin in the Bitcoin game than it is to have at this point in a gray like we were talking about earlier like in the winter of 2015 2016 it was like oh this could i feel like this could fail at some point like if it's it was at like 180 to 250 dollars and, and it was seeming pretty weak the the um the psyche of the bitcoin industry was, was very low level um but that leads us like to another question like bitcoin is created to destroy central banks that's like one of the big questions that everybody has the central bank's going to adopt bitcoin it's like we do we even want them to and even if they did like what would they turn into it's not like they would be able to manipulate bitcoin's monetary policy or interest rates around it. the best they could do is use it as a tool to try to curtail their their fiat exuberance um i guess the point i'm trying to get to as we transition to a bitcoin standard like what does the world particularly at a banking level, look like in your mind? Well, you know, the, the game theory works on every every level and it's going to work on the central bank level. So the thing about, if you think, look at the gold cartel, for example, right? Central banks and billion banks control the price of gold. The price discovery is done by the cartel. It's a cartel, just like the oil price cartel. Price of oil is driven by a cartel. 
It very rarely trades at a level that's not manufactured by the cartel. Same thing for gold. Gold price is a, is a cartel. And the reason why a cartel can exist is that some somebody in the cartel can break the cartel and gold could suddenly gap higher. But how much higher? 10, 20, 30 percent maybe? Uh, are they really going to, is it worth making 30 percent? instead of making the one to two percent every single day you make uh skimming the suckers who are buying gold on the open market and feeding into your cartel no you know you'd rather take that one two percent a day you work with the cartel there's no risk but with bitcoin the upside potential for a breakaway central bank is not 20 or 30 percent it's a thousand to two thousand percent or higher this will entice one of these central banks to break the cartel. And which one it'll be, it's hard to say. Could be Bank of Japan is, would be a good candidate for this. But once they break the cartel and say to their brethren in central banks, hey guys, <laughs> see you around suckers. You know, we're just gonna triple our reserves overnight because we're going long Bitcoin. So the response from the other central banks will be, uh-oh, well, all right, we're all in. So now it's a hash war. It's a bidding war. Bitcoin's, you know, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. So now they become Bitcoiners. They've got a, a, a cache of Bitcoin. But the thing about having a lot of Bitcoin is it doesn't give you any power over the network. It's very democratic in that sense. If you have one Satoshi, you have the same power as a central bank with, you know, 100,000 Bitcoin. You don't, you cannot change the governance. You cannot change the protocol. You cannot change the network. And this is what we saw in 2017. This was the, the this is what got Michael Saylor's attention. So we have a Bitcoin standard. We have hard money, and we don't have anybody anywhere that's able to exert influence uh, or coercion on anybody to get any more of their Bitcoin. So we enter into a new era of our species. I mean, it sounds grandiose, but our species has never had an opportunity like this ever. It's been postulated and theorized by people like Hayek and others. But now, or the Austrian economists, you know, this is like an Austrian economics experiment that's gone live. Uh, you know, Austrian economics models were always very interesting, but not practical to, to implement. But now it is happening. So um, that brings in a lot of philosophical, metaphysical, sociological, and so all this happens. And so, yeah, the central banks are going to be hoarding Bitcoin. And that's part of it. That was that was right there in the Genesis block, hard-coded. It was well, all well, foretold. They'll try to get it. And the thing is, I think uh, Nick Batia makes quite a convincing argument of this in his book, uh, Layered Money, is that we could be heading back toward a time where, you know, we are all Medici, anybody who has the Bitcoin, just like pre- Bank of Amsterdam, you know, the power was with all the, the gold merchants, the bankers, the guys who had all the gold, okay? They lent out the gold. If a king or a pope wanted a war, they had to go to Medici and ask, can you lend me money for, get, lend me some gold to fight this war? So they had to convince the guy that there was something worth fighting for. Um, and those were the days when you could just steal people's uh, land. Like, it's not really possible these days that you can just say, okay, we're going to take Mexico. We're going to take half of Mexico. If you finance our war with your Bitcoin, we'll give you Mexico. So 
you know, they're going to have to come begging again. They're not just going to, like America, we've been at war my whole life, your whole life. Like we've been at war. We're always bombing somebody, right? Because there's no cost. Like you don't have to ask the people for permission. You don't need to, um, you know, since 1971, we don't need to ask for like, okay, we're going to have to raise taxes or anything. We just use inflation, right? So they're going to have to, the cost of war is going to be, you know, they're going to have to beg us for our Bitcoin and I don't think knowing the the time preference and and how Bitcoiners are, I just don't see them willingly giving it to a central banker or a treasury to go finance some war. They're going to want to build a, a big company, a nice, you know, they're going to want to build something like Strike. They're not going to want to like, I don't care about bombing Yemen. What, what, what right. does that have to do with me? It's like, that's the other beautiful thing too, you know, that we have Bitcoin and potential for a Bitcoin standard, if we get a Bitcoin standard, it dissolves the friction that these international currency markets inherently create, right? Like you allow people to, to free trade with a common currency and it eliminates friction to a certain extent, which could eliminate physical friction as well. And that's the one thing I most look forward to. And, and another theme of your show that really resonated with me, especially at a younger age, just like the anti-war stuff i guess it is imperative that we just stop aimlessly bombing people in other countries to to re remain an empire if you will it's, it's really embarrassing as an american and again like i was 17 during the great financial crisis and i was 11 or 10 during 9 11 in the aftermath of that and i just remember being young, like fifth, sixth, seventh grader, and the propaganda that was spilled at the schools. We were eating freedom fries. We were like picking like one side or another uh, about the Iraq war at such a young age. And I just look back in disgust at how we were manipulated as, as children, right? And it's like uh, these people never cared about us. Uh, and Bitcoin just allows us to separate and get away from caring, and we can actually care about each other instead of having these kleptocrats run our lives? Well, when we go to Bitcoin conferences, again, especially over the past two or three years, it's like you realize there are people from all over the world. And I, I, I feel like a Bitcoiner. When I meet a Bitcoiner, I don't care where they're from, what religion, what color, what nationality, gender, anything. We're Bitcoiners. Like, and I feel we are the same, like we're a similar culture, similar ideas and ideology. And I think, um, you know, that is beyond any of this sort of propaganda model whereby you're like told, okay, we need to invade Libya, not because it's oil rich and it has that nice sweet oil, it's because we're going to save the women and children of Benghazi. And you're like, where's Benghazi? Who's what? What? Who? What? what why suddenly out of nowhere? Because there's going to be a genocide there. We got to go save them. And right? Everybody, like if you're, if you're against the war, you're for the dictator, but, uh, Gaddafi. And you're like, the guy's been there for like 40, 50 years and you guys were supporting him. Like, what is it? Like, it's amazing that the propaganda that mm. just fills the fiat space. And I just think that's part of the fiat dark ages. It's like, it's so mushy and like, you're really relying on handouts from those who dole out the, the fiat. Right, right. So that whole uh, invasion of Libya business, with Hillary and all that, you know, the thing, most people can just tune into any international broadcaster and get live footage or Twitter live footage from the scene. 
and see that what's being talked about on U.S. cable news is rank propaganda. So the need to ramp up the distraction is getting so absurd. When I see a headline like, oh, we're going to ban Pepe Le Pew, this cartoon that's been on TV for 50 years about a skunk for some reasons, uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. They, the, they, they've got to keep ramping up this paranoia and psychosis um, to deflect from the fact Pepe Le Pew, Dr. Seuss, and then Mr. Potato Head. Like, right. Mr. Potato Head. So these, the, but that's a necessity because because otherwise people would just simply tune into um, English speaking foreign media and and see that oh what you just told me is your foreign policy is just stupid propaganda because you're sadists. So uh, I don't want to support it. But um, that's why we have to go to war with Pepe Le Pew. I remember the reason when I mentioned Bush and Blair were going to bomb Al Jazeera. Remember during the, uh, you might have been too young, but in 2003, when they started shock and awe and started bombing Iraq, CNN and MSNBC were like, we are heroes. We are Americans and we're doing this for the people of Iraq. We're helping them. And all Al Jazeera did is they had Arabic speakers there with cameras filming the babies dying, the women and families being blown up uh, by the bombs. And what was that? Just the footage, that's all they're showing. What? No American journalists were there on the ground other than the embedded ones on the side of the soldiers. They called that propaganda, just showing footage of it. Not the in the studios of the wolf blitzer here telling you that this shock and awe is an amazing triumph of American values. Again, like that, that's the propaganda. <laughs> It's all disgusting. I heard the, the mission accomplished photo shoot that like six months into the war. So I forget exactly how long into the war, but we're still in Iraq. Mission obviously not accomplished. Uh, who even maybe the mission was accomplished, but maybe it wasn't the mission they were feeding us. Um, and then like you like we're talking about all this. We're bombing Syria again right now. It's like they're distracting us from that fact, and it's like ah. Need and it's, it's very cultural revolution like too like uh, and it's like cultural revolution meets mccarthy era like people that like there's witch hunts like if you're if you're against bombing syria like you're you're a, 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 an assad apologist and you're like mm -hmm. jesus yeah. christ is like uh like there are at least 50 more countries we could start bombing are you are you apologists for those leaders of those countries like are you an apologist for mbs let's bomb saudi arabia let's bomb congo let's bomb venezuela like wh where does it stop yeah yeah it's just uh really gross psyops and gaslighting that's going on as well so you know, people have memories. They have embedded memories of, let's say, childhood cartoons like Bugs Bunny, Pepe Le Pew. Uh, these these are part of our hard coded subconscious that we uh, have have made almost uh, you know define our psyche to some degree. Are built on these images and catchphrases from when we were children sitting around watching TV, Captain Kangaroo, you know, and things like that when of my, uh, you know, uh, childhood. So the psyops come when the people who are pushing the war, they want to destabilize you. They want you to doubt yourself in this gaslighting way. So let's say 
that childhood memory of a cartoon, Pepe Le Pew, actually that's evil, right? So this is straight out of a, you know, a, you know, North Korean torture camp, right? <laughs> this is how they take prisoners of war and torture them is by completely messing with their brains and showing them images. Remember that great film by The Parallax View by uh, Pakula. And he made three films in the 70s, All the President's Men, The Parallax View, and I believe he also made Rollover, which was about a financial scandal on Wall Street. And during the 70s, you had films like this, which were featured the quote, anti-hero. They were digging into the underbelly of the American society post-Vietnam War. So in The Parallax View, they show how Warren Beatty is effectively, if I remember the plot, you know, they turn him into a, a stool pigeon, a fall guy for a domestic uh, presidential assassination. And there's a company called the Parallax Company, and he goes there for an interview naively. And then he's exposed, and there's a sequence in the film, which is very famous at the time because of the editing that they use, very quick editing, sub, almost subliminal where they're reprogramming his unconscious and subconscious mind so that he's now susceptible to the messaging coming from their propaganda overlords. So here's the American population who's at home, stuck, watching screens all day. They, they're bombing Syria without any um, kind of um, justification whatsoever, but except to make money, right? War is very profitable. Make a quick buck. You know, you can't make a faster buck than you know, $50 million Tomahawk missile. If you sell Tomahawk missiles, you know, you got to get them, you know, up in the air, right? So how do you get the population to be emotionally, psychologically tortured? You say your childhood memories are shit. Donald Duck is, 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 a, is a pedophile. Mickey Mouse is a murderer. Pepe Le Pew is a rapist, right? So, you, you know, it's, it's, it's psychological. It's a psyops, basically, and it, it's effective. Because look at the people we see on cable news. Look at the people we see who are putting this stuff forward. They are, they are obviously have some pretty severe cognitive damage. So, you know, wh where did they come from? Like when, the, when they say, okay, that's a wrap, Rachel. You can go home for the weekend. Does she go home for the weekend? Or did they take her down in the basement <laughs> and pry her eyes open like in Clockwork Orange and feed her mind with disturbing images for 48 hours and crank her up for Monday morning where she's going to come out and spew some incredible nasty psyops again? You know, another point, another point to make as we're talking about all this war, and it dawned on me that this is part of the fiat dark ages and why we associate war and conflict with fiat ages is diplomacy. What is diplomacy about? It was in order to avoid bankruptcy, right? Because it used to cost your king, your government uh, gold to start a war. So you don't want a war because you don't want to go bankrupt and you don't want to end up like the king of France beheaded, right? By the people, because that's how essentially the royal family of France ended up decapitated is because of helping the American revolution. They went bust fighting their enemy essentially england so you don't want to you don't want to get decapitated you don't want to uh go bankrupt in a hard money world because you need permission and here in a sort of bitcoin world of hard money a consensus algorithm you need consensus by the 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 governed 
to uh, start a war. Like, like they're not going to pay for you to bomb Syria or Libya. Like they, no, they're going to say no. Like what's in it for me? Like I don't, I don't understand what they do to me and why, why, why do I have to disrupt my life? Well, not even like why do we have to disrupt our lives? Like look around. Like we need to spend money here first. Like we need to fix. <laughs> like we need to fix what's going on here. Well, you, you don't care about me. You care about bombing these people. And that seems to be making my life worse off over time, at least the course of my yeah, life. Yeah, Texas, the energy goes down in Austin for days. People are without electricity. People are dying because there's no infrastructure. Bridges are falling. How about 70,000 Americans dying of overdose a year? And Hillary Clinton blamed them for her loss first before she blamed Russia. She was like, losers voted for Trump. Winners in San Francisco and Manhattan where all the cantillionaires are, they're winners only because the Fed made them winners and printed money for them. So she said the losers are deserve to die. But hey, let's cause more cantillionaires by bombing Libya. Like let's go, you know, sodomize Gaddafi because um, we let's pretend we care about the women and children in Benghazi. We laugh and mock at the people of West Virginia or Ohio dying of overdose, but we somehow care about the people in Benghazi. Like that doesn't add up. I'm not buying it, Marty. I'm not <laughs> buying it one bit. Either you can I. tell me that all day long and I'm still not buying it. It sounds like a, a load of cards wallop. <laughs> right. And it's, it's beautiful as she said, uh, the winners in San Francisco, New York and having it just moved out of New York probably like exactly a year ago today. I think it's if you actually go to the cities and see the state of the, those physical spaces, it's very indicative of the society we live in. Like you have like everybody who's rich high up in the, the skyscrapers and then on the ground in the subways, everything's dirty, everything's breaking down. It's all shit. And Sam Max and like, I mm, literal shit on the streets. It's and you yeah, have like the Max eye and of I went to... in the middle of town with the Salesforce building. It's like all weird. Max and I, when we went to Bitcoin 2019, we were so shocked at the despair. I mean, it was horrible, right? I had no idea. I hadn't been to San Francisco in, in like two decades. And just the human misery and the excrement and the, 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 just the state of the people who were homeless. It was so horrible to go that when when they invited us to speak at uh, Bitcoin 2020, we were like, no, we need uh, like twenty thousand dollars to go there. Yeah, pay me a huge sum of money because I'm not going to that stink shithole. Like, yeah, we were we definitely like we like I was physically ill, thinking like I can't go back there. It's just like how can anybody see that? And the thought that these people in particular in San Francisco, the social justice warriors who want to like moderate all our speech online, you're like. Oh my God, look at you, your front yard, your backyard, it's all over. Like you guys cannot run. Like if that is what you want us all to live like, like that is human misery and despair. Like- Right, these executives are walking through fields of human feces and syringes to get to their office so, to tell me and censor me that I can't say the word human feces and syringes. Right, no, I mean, I I was at Bitcoin 2019 too. My wife and I showed up a little bit early to take a trip to wine country and we stayed uh, a night in San Francisco. And literally we, we fly in long cross country flight from New York. Uh, we're pretty tired. It's pretty late. We ran a car, like a pull up to valet, like on a street. 
of New York, a valet guy comes, takes my keys and he's like, all right, I'll see you in a little bit. And we turn right around and like literally on the steps of the hotel, we're going to stay in. There's a man masturbating you know, oh <laughs> literally on the steps of my wife was like, what the hell is going on here? I was like, ah. was that Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> <laughs> might've been, might've been, maybe that's like his weird fetish. He just puts on hoodies and goes to hotels <laughs> in San Francisco and jerks off. I heard of something about it. Uh, but it just it shows you how disturbed the mind of our elite are. And when I look around at the financial system, the economic system, that's all I see is like, that's the embodiment of it. Like, if you look hard, like that's what everything looks like. It is a, a, a gargoyle of an economy. Like it's, it's so gross and um, horrifying if you look at it, what our elite do, like they, they they have us living like that on various levels in this fiat dark ages. Yeah. It's sad. It's like depressing. That's why I love focusing on Bitcoin because Bitcoin, like we've said, Paul Tudor Jones pointed out, I'm sure we understand this very innately. Bitcoin provides a strong opportunity to, to create a, a more beautiful future by taking control away from these kleptocrats who. And I feel like, you know, somebody with say, like 500,000 Satoshis, you know, they have just as much of a voice as somebody with 90,000 Bitcoin, like, like uh, Michael Saylor. So neither of them can change the protocol. Neither of them could uh, determine force consensus. Like you, they both need consensus. Like they both have a say an equal say in what happens to Bitcoin. Yeah. And the price discovery is kind of interesting thinking about it. So, Okay, Michael Saylor, he's got a gazillion uh, Satoshis and somebody else has 500,000 Satoshis. But that somebody else who has 500,000 Satoshis is actually a gifted artist and they just created some sculpture that Michael Saylor develops a fetish for. You know, he'll, he'll pay um, millions and millions of Satoshis, hundreds of millions of Satoshis for that sculpture. So then you have price discovery in a new way. So it's driven more by another layer of human interaction, which could be a layer of talent and a layer of that's, that's not determined by the fiat money and the money printing, the coercion and the marketing and the propaganda and the psyops where aesthetics are also going to be improved with this hard money exchange as well. And that people, this is one thing I noticed in France. I lived in France for many years that the, the, as a rule, the population respects and it has an aesthetic and it's, it, it's the stories are, are replete of people coming to France, coming to Paris, penniless on the streets, but start drawing and they're that they're, they're recognized as artists. And they're, they become artists and they become well-known artists. They become successful artists. And because there's a general sense of what is an aesthetic in that country. And I went to learn French in several schools. And you, you learn that on a, at a very young age, in childhood, the French curriculum is about appreciating aesthetics and, and art appreciation, food appreciation, uh, almost to a comical degree where you know, I saw a video of like a, well, first graders in a French school being taught the various subtleties of cheeses, you know, which to the American would seem incredibly snobbish and absurd. But nevertheless, it is part of a culture that appreciates 
nuance and aesthetics and subtleties and artistic and art history. So that that could emerge in this uh, Bitcoin renaissance where the crassness of fiat money, the denial of shit waddling San Francisco elite money printing scum are demonetized. And those people who are living in trailer parks but happen to be the next Leonardo da Vinci or the next Michelangelo have a way to avail themselves to this new hard money economy. So price discovery is shifts away from the ersatz and the bullshit to the real and the genuine. And that reverberates all up and down society. And the people with the billions, you know, a lot of billionaires, the reason they keep making billions is because they're frightened to death that their billions are going to be taken away from them. Um, and so fear generates billionaires the same way fear generates paupers. You know, fear is on both on, on both ends of the barbell of society. Um, there's a happy mix of people in the middle who who are blithely not billionaires or poor who seem to find Bitcoin first. You know, they're like, you know what? It's, it's the same middle class that gave us the American Revolution. It was bored guys like Thomas Jefferson and these guys were were well off middle class bored aristocrats who were like, fuck it, let's just have a revolution. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they effectively did it. It wasn't like the French Revolution, you know, driven by a much different set of incentives or the Bolshevik Revolution, which was a whole different kind of a revolution. The, the American Revolution was really by Bitcoining mentality of people who said, you know what, we, the reason we're going to revolt is because we can. So we're going to do it. Right. And sustaining on these two topics, particularly, I saw a tweet earlier this morning. It's like really paradoxical because arguably Bitcoin, if successful, could be the biggest revolution in human history and yet the most peaceful as well, which is, which is an incredible thought to have. And then it's funny that we're talking about aesthetics in, uh, under a Bitcoin standard, literally looking at the, the newsletter for the Ben Today, public spaces under a Bitcoin standard and is talking about how we can have better public aesthetics. So I, I just thought that was interesting. And I, I'm citing a gentleman by the name of Kelly Lannon, who has a, a substack called Bitcoin Urbanism. And in his most recent uh, blog, he, he basically pointed out purchasing power of hard money increases over time with better technology and economic productive gains. Uh, increased purchasing power allows cities to build and maintain nicer, better, and aesthetically appealing infrastructure. The cost of methods and materials previously used for say public comfort stations decreases over time or upgrades become more affordable so it's you're able to use the deflationary nature of the the hard currency to sort of reinvest and these these well-off middle-class aristocrats can can reinvest in the aesthetics of the place they live and and compare that to like going back to new york city the public toilets in new york or they just had that weird mirror and like a sliding door and it looks like <laughs> shit when you get in there. Like the, <laughs> the possibilities are. Yeah, well, I have a funny public toilet story from Paris. So in Paris, they used to have basically just a steel wall in the middle of a street. And so men would go and essentially piss against this steel wall in, onto the into gutter, essentially. So that was a public... Uh, toilet. So there was a scandal. This was in the early nineties that my uh, friend of mine told me about. There was a, there was this guy called, he had, he had the nickname of uh, Lattes, um, 
which was like a, a double entendre because it means a cup and it also is the name of a famous it's the name of paris itself but this guy used to put little pieces of bread in this public toilet thing and after it got soaked with piss he would eat it yeah <laughs> so he became very very famous for this I bet. It's yeah. like one way to get fame. But, you know, this, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a <laughs> interesting insight into the, into like a village mentality, if you will. I, I thought you were going to compare this because we were just talking about San Francisco and the public defecation where yeah. it's a uh, human misery. Whereas of course, everything in Paris has to be elevated to art. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah, exactly. In, in Paris, it's uh, misery is art. You know, urination on, is artistic because they have an aesthetic. They can pee on bread and eat it with, with an inherent aesthetic. That's the difference. In San Francisco, they're just pooping on the street and walking away as if it's just shit. My God, how gauche. You could have put that, spread that on a nice brioche and um, instead they just yeah. leave it there on the sidewalk for others to pick up. It's a local yeah. rendition of French onion soup. Only the only the hardcore Parisians know. <laughs> well, you know, French cuisine is like remarkably disgusting in many ways. It smells. Right, so you have andouillette, which is pig intestines, mm -hmm. and it smells like pig shit. And when you walk into a restaurant that has andouillette on the menu for lunch, you're like walking into a barn. It's just like, and people are eating this pig shit, uh, laden uh, pig guts and like, oh, this is so fantastic. Then the cheese itself, it's unpasteurized. So many times it will smell like piss. Uh, so, and, and that's your gastronomically beautiful luncheon would be pig shit and cheese piss, right? And you can just feel it wafting, you know, at the cafe door as you walk in. And uh, after a while, though, it, it makes sense, you know. It's no, like... And we, uh, Max and I, when we lived in Paris <laughs> for years, I, we would have to leave the restaurant. We, I, like, I would be gagging, like it smells like poop. So I, ha and and just the thought, we did try because his his nephew is French, and I did try to take a bite of his uh, andouillette, and it was like I almost threw up. It was like like I couldn't <laughs> get it past my nose. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, how, 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 how do you eat that? Yeah. Like, it's, it is literally like a log of poop that you're putting in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I stuck to the wine, the beef bovignon, the steak frites when I was in Paris a couple of years That's ago. good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, you can't go you wrong. You can't go With wrong a good there. steak frites. Steak yeah. frites. I like the sauce au poivre. Sauce au poivre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of fun. We lived, I lived in France for a combined 14 years. And then Stacy and I lived in either Paris or the south of France for that was like almost 10 years, right? Yeah, we lived in the south of France for a year and a half and in Paris somewhere between four and a half and five and a half years. Yeah, right, right. So we've, we've spent most of our time together in France. F France. And then it's about four or five years in London. London and then, yeah. Well, so, we're missing a few years. <laughs> but we were in, but we started off in Europe. So that's another reason why our journalistic career, you know, has taken an interesting journey because we started off in Europe. And as Stacy was saying before, in my case, I was English speaking and these English speaking networks were popping up everywhere and they needed somebody that could go on and talk about finance and economics. So, and once you go on one of these shows for one of these networks, you get on the list, you know, they're like, come on down here because there's uh, something going on. You need to give us three minutes. So then, um, I yeah, we lived that. near the Champs-Élysées at, at a certain point, and then 
all the uh, network studios are there. And of course, like, I don't know, Al Jazeera or a Chinese network or, or somebody, CNN calls and say, um, you know, whatever the time zone is. Like, do you have anybody in Paris who could speak English who will show up can, and could talk about the financial collapse? Right. And the the guy running the AP in Paris will be like, yeah, there's Max Geyser. He lives right down the road. Yeah, yeah. So they call me up and I pop down there and it's like, okay, give three minutes on this crisis. And um, so, you know, one day in that, AP studio, I was talking to them about the fact that, well, how many hours a day do you actually do stuff in the studio? And they're like, oh, you know, some days we don't do anything. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just shoot a show, Max and Stacy, and do a half hour show, and then you guys go sell it as a show, uh, in, 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 and you can use the studio and get some use out of it. So they're like, oh, that's a cool idea. And that's how we started. So that's that was the beginning of our broadcast journalistic career, and that then we started doing, and we did, we're doing this type of content for different broadcasters and, and then we're at RT at the moment. And, uh, but as a result, when we came to the U S like a lot of people thought we were French. <laughs> so like we were in New York and having lunch with somebody and, you know, I sound like a fucking New Yorker. That's where I grew up. And, um, the guy's like, so uh, talking to, talking to us and he's remember, uh, Whalen, Chris Whalen, he's like, um, so, so he's your German, right? And I'm like, I grew up in Westchester County, dude. Um, you know, I'm grew up 20 miles from this restaurant, right? And he's like, whoa, I thought you were European this whole time. And I'm like, no, I, I live there, but I'm American. So and especially like Max is uh, when he spe he speaks fluent French, but it's like on a like he's like Henry Miller, like bonjour, like you know, he has an American accent, apparently. By the way, guys who like girls, uh, French women love Americans speaking French, American guys speaking French. Oh, we, we, je ne comprends. Yeah, they, 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 they think the accent is sexy. So I, I have a lot of French girlfriends, and that's what they tell me. I was surprised to hear this. Oh, yeah, it's rich pickings. I, my favorite one ever was like this, this person who was, first of all, there was a person for about, four years on every single YouTube upload of our Kaiser report would ask me why I was wearing a wig. Like, <laughs> so several thousand times a year, he would post something saying, oh, yeah. why are you wearing a wig? Why are you like, and my hair is like so messed up, like all the time it looks completely different. And like, why, why are you putting on that American accent? We know you're Russian. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I was like, this is like, <laughs> this is our accent like we don't speak like yeah. there's nothing remotely not american about us oh my god see you know in on online there there's the there's the birth there's a group called the incels oh yeah and the fappers right so these are involuntarily celibate and chronic masturbators and so <laughs> you know they live a sheltered life uh what i can tell you right now is get on a plane and go to europe and go to Eastern Europe. If you can speak American, you're an American, and you're on anywhere in Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Belarus, any of those countries where there's a lot of English spoken anyway, or Northern Europe, Iceland, Norway, Finland, uh, Sweden, um, A, you're gonna get laid, <laughs> B, you're gonna probably find a wife. And uh, wife, that's what you that. need to do. See, there's so, there are solutions to all problems. You know, you shouldn't be online saying I'm an incel 
I mean, that's not going to get you laid. You need to get on a plane and get the fuck out of here and go to Iceland. I mean, Iceland's got some of the most beautiful women in the world and they're starving to meet Americans. They're just, and there's only yeah, one strip. I, there's one high, there's only one main street with like 10 bars. I think he's exaggerating a bit about Icelandic people wanting and, and to you meet can Americans. Meet, you can meet every woman in town in two hours. You'll be, you go home married, you know, it's fantastic. <laughs> go from incel to Chad in very little time. It can happen. <laughs> <laughs> right in less than three days like yeah that's a good way to pitch a, a world tour here like just for a hundred thousand dollars we'll turn you into a chad right. let's travel <laughs> the world and try to find a country with women willing to date you. some men have paid a hundred thousand dollars to meet this icelandic beauty here at chad <laughs> anonymous for $49.99, we'll get you on a flight this evening and in Reykjavik by tomorrow morning, laid by tomorrow night, come back married to a beautiful Icelandic woman at 1-800-BITCOIN-CHAD. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a Zoom call where we, hey, we're going to walk you through how to book your flight and we're just going to convince you to go to the exactly. That's all it takes. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was, uh, speaking yeah. of being from New York, Max, this is like another thing that really surprised me. I don't know if it's crypto graffiti who shared it again, another old video of yourself, but being introduced by Jerry Seinfeld at one of the comedy clubs in, in New York. Was it in the yeah, 1979? Yeah. 1979. So that's my last year in high school. So I was I was doing actually I had a TV show in high school called The King Kaiser Show. And uh, I the guy who I made this with ended up being a director under Jim Henson. And he directed a few of Jim Henson's projects, including The Wubbulous World of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. So he's a white supremacist, he, you're you know, saying. He's an Emmy Award winning <laughs> uh, television and film director and producer. And uh, he was also at this high school. So the production values are way over the top for this King Kaiser show. So we decided to do a documentary about comics in New York City and also CBGBs. So there's, I have a lot of footage <laughs> of me and CBGBs hanging out uh, in the 1979. And uh, so we have a lot of this footage of comic strips. There's Jerry Seinfeld, um, uh, the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry, Larry David, David, Larry David, all these comedians. We got all this uh, at that time. Video porta packs were just you know black and white. There were, you didn't even couldn't get color videotape at that point. It was a portable video equipment like that it was really only two years old. It was like huge you know stuff. And um, so yeah, as part of this documentary we were making i was already doing comedy and so i did a set at the comic strip and um i was doing comedy at these clubs at that time and shooting it and had an interest in kind of film tv and comedy and then uh th this is uh kind of so yeah i was doing comedy at that time and uh, we have that footage. So that was a little clip on YouTube. You know, Jerry Seinfeld's introducing me to the stage. Um, I was just talking about this other time I was at the comedy, uh, the Catch a Rising Star, which is like three blocks away. And I was on a night where it was after Rodney Dangerfield and before Robin Williams. Oh. I was stuck in between those two for five, like fun. a 10 minute. 10 minutes set. Well, you know, it's, it was crazy. It was, it's like, it's, it's just a wild thing because by the time people realized Roddy Dangerfield was off stage, 
you know, and Robin Williams was coming on stage. I'm like, that was a tough spot to be in. <laughs> you know, I got maybe two laughs, but, uh, <laughs> you know, because everyone's waiting for Robin and Robin's backstage, you know, you can see him and he had this, he prepped before he went on stage. He had this uh, ritual basically that was known by everybody and including the bartender. So he would basically line up 10 glasses and the bartender would prepare 10 kamikazes which which are i forget what's in a kamikaze but i think it's like all the white liquors in one drink with some lime i think is a kamikaze and then so the mc would be on stage saying like now ladies and gentlemen a very funny man is about to come on stage right they're doing the warm-up thing and like there's robin boom 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 yeah 10 of these holy shit shots right and there's like robin williams so he hits the stage and all that shit, those drinks like explode in his brain at that time. Like, and he, but he controls it. I mean, his comedy is so physical and off the wall, energy packed, but he's controlling it, right? So it's, he's not, he, and that, I've never seen actually people watching him in a club like that. You actually saw, two, I saw two things, which I had never seen anyone else anywhere else. People actually falling out of their chair laughing. Mm -hmm. which is a phrase you hear people, but I never saw it. But in, 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 in when he was performing, people would literally fall out of their chairs and people would also piss themselves, literally. <laughs> you know, three or four people would leave the set because they, they couldn't hold it. They were just pissing themselves laughing. Um, just like a comedy bomb goes off and there's casualties. There's people pissing and falling and it's just an amazing, an amazing thing. And, of course, you never see that anymore because comedy has been now denuded. It's been censored. It's been cut. But so my comedy career, basically, it got cut short because as as a struggling and then I went to New York University and I was doing I was doing comedy. I was doing theater. I was doing sketch comedy with Alec Baldwin, who was at the time going to New York University. So we were doing sketch comedy together. Uh, Chris Columbus, who wrote the screenplay for Goonies. Oh, uh, and sold it to Steven Spielberg movies. was up in the uh, dorm room tapping out. I remember, you know, like talking to Alec and somebody else about where's Chris, you know, he's usually down here in, in, in the cafeteria. He's like, Oh, he's, he hasn't come out of his room in three weeks. He's writing some script. And we're like, Oh, that guy's a loser. You know, he's that guy's never going anywhere. So he sent Goonies to Spielberg's office purely on spec. And the way Spielberg tells it, he said he was walking out of his office on a Friday and on the top of a stack of scripts was Goonies. He just picked it up on his way out and it was it was green lit the next week. And then Chris Columbus, one of the highest grossing directors in Hollywood history, because, of course, he went on to do the Harry Potter films mm -hmm. or at least the first one and a bunch of other films. Uh, so and then uh, Home Alone, Home Alone, mm -hmm. who? Also down, we had uh, Spike Lee was making She's Gotta Have It, which cost, I think, $10,000 to make. And uh, he was trying to hustle the money to make that film. And he was actually, nobody liked Spike Lee because he was such like a loud mouth guy who was constantly, you know, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. And he was just like, this guy is. He, Spike Lee asked Max's mom for money. Yes, for the he asked my mom for money. Also, at the radio station where I was hanging out was Rick Rubin. Wow. Rick Rubin cut wow. 
LL Cool J's first record in the dorm room, Weinstein dorm room at the same at that time as well. So so anyway, so I was in the I was there. I was doing comedy, I was doing radio, and I was hanging out, you know, 24 hours a day basically because it was punk downtown. I was living uptown on 145th Street. So we had all the funk up t- uptown. We had the punk rock downtown and uh doing a lot of odd jobs, minimum wage jobs, packing boxes. I was a proofreader at a rubber stamp factory. You know, you wouldn't think that was actually making rubber stamps in a factory and you have to proofread the galleys before they go and cut the um, rubber. And then mm-hmm. they got to you know, glue it to a stick and they send it out. And like, oh, I was an usher at Radio City Music Hall. So then as one of my odd jobs, I ended up work, you know, I got a job at a stock brokerage firm downtown at Payne Weber. And the second I walked in there, I was just mesmerized by what, what I saw. It was it just spoke to me. Um, so I, within six months, I was licensed and on the phone, you know, stock brokering and, uh, you know, hit it really hard. And, and, Usually, and what what I had that nobody else had was because I was living uptown, I had this very, very deep-rooted fuck you attitude, which really worked well as a, on, on the phone, where you, you basically, you know, when you're doing telephone marketing on Wall Street, it, it can get, you know, it's basically very, uh, it's hard, hard selling. So it's, you know, you're calling people up and you're just like, the pitch, you know, the pitch is whatever it is. And then, and then it's about closing that deal. So it's like, look, Jack, I I'm just, fucking do this. I just spelled out to you something that's going to change not only your life, but your kid's life and your kid's kid's life with generational wealth. And then, you know, and just like, um, hammering and hammering because everyone else, kind of goes through the training program and they have to ask the blah, 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 blah. And it takes like two years to get to a level of, of, of in, in that business where you're kind of making it takes like two years at that time anyway. But I was like from within six months, I was like the number five producer in that, in that office, just like with this take no prisoner uptown style. It's like, and then the eighties happened, which were, which were incredible on wall street, you know, I'm, so I'm 22 and now I'm making incredible amount of money and the atmosphere is unbelievable. So while I'm calling out doing sales, we're getting called in, we're getting calls into the office from hookers and drug dealers. So you could be on the phone and you could be like, I just made 50,000 bucks in the last five minutes. And I just spent 60,000 bucks in the last five minutes. <laughs> so, so I need to go make another know, 50. There's, yeah, so there's so much going on. So the New York Times, they wrote a story about this. And they said they estimated that 98% of everyone working on Wall Street in the 80s was using cocaine. And literally you would walk into these offices and it would be on the tabletops. It would be everywhere because the people managing these offices, they didn't care. They just wanted to see the numbers, right? I mean, I, I was working at a firm and the guy next to me, 
was came he was so drunk that he fell out of his chair and he was semi-conscious the, the two managers come over they check it out they pick him up they stick him back in his chair pick up the phone put it in his hand and and dial a number you know and like don't you know keep going keep going just keep going keep going like there's nothing 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 stops us you know i had worked in hollywood i had worked in hollywood and gone to all these premieres hung out with all these movie stars and all this stuff never once in all that time did i see drugs and in fact at that time uh people didn't even drink like it wasn't a big thing nobody drank wine because you had to read more scripts and you didn't want it to look good you didn't want to look bad for the camera and all that sort of stuff so the very first time i ever everybody assumed like i must have seen all this sort of stuff like it's hollywood it's like decadent when i moved to london in 94 and i went to a party uh thrown by a ubs banker and i saw piles of of cocaine like actual pile of cocaine sitting on this table and I was like what the fuck like that's the first time I had ever seen cocaine and I was like 25 and I was like what the hell is this this is just like it seems so decadent and openly criminal like how can you just do this and like there are all these bankers walking around and supermodels and stuff like that and I was like wow I guess they're open about it here in London <laughs> Yeah, the 80s, yeah, it was a pretty wild uh, uh, time. And then the crash of 87 really took the wind out of everybody's sails. Um, everyone got wrecked. That was, uh, you know, we mentioned Paul Tudor Jones. That was where he really uh, became super famous, Yeah, right? Paul Tudor Jones called the crash, and um, he made a lot of money on the crash. And um, he really pioneered this style of hedge fund you know kind of seat of the pants hedge fund trading that was hyper kinetic and um there's a great video about him that you can find online and see him is in this 30s i guess and he's basically just working with two machines a couple of phones but the style was was really um transitioning away from a state he came out of agricultural futures in kansas board of trade and stuff like that and it's a kind of an again an old boys network was being transformed by a much you know, younger hotshot crowds and he he really led that movement and was gen you know he had um, three years I think three years in a row where he was he was uh, he was he was hitting hundred percent returns um, which is I think still stands as a major accomplishment that is it's still talked about. Um, and, and then it, the crash happened and also in, into the crash where the um, people like Ivan Bosky, uh, Michael Milken, Dennis Levine, I, Ivan, um, um, the other corporate raiders, Ron Perlman, um, who were doing all these corporate raids and raising all this money with Milken and doing all these leverage buyouts. And uh, and that added to to the to the frenzy of it all my the, the drexel burnham lambert was that their offices were there's two offices dbl and lehman brothers were kind of the two most frenetic psychotic places for everything every excess you could imagine happening and so when 87 hit and mike milken goes to jail dennis levine i think went to jail ivan boski still in jail and um 
the corporate raider market transitioned from these cowboys to more corporate. So it became very, very corporate. So within, so by, by 1990, like Wall Street had gone from what I experienced from 82 to 1990 as being really uh, driven by 20 year olds who were just like crazy uh, to becoming, it became a lot more uh, corporatized. So that's when I left and it's like the, like the fun of it, of it was the money wasn't, wasn't really enough at that point. You know, I missed the culture of the, just the crazy culture. Uh, so then I ended up in Paris for five years, basically just hanging out. Um, but anyway, the, uh, so I've seen the 87 crash, the dot-com crash, three Bitcoin crashes now, huge crashes. The 2008 crash. And the 2008 crashes. So I've seen six major crashes so far. Uh, and they're all kind of the same in that the, the newest, the generation, the 20-year-olds that are riding it the hardest get wrecked the hardest. Yeah. The ones that learn their lessons live and hopefully survive, but no, it is, it is hard to, because like right now we have like the wall street bets crew. There's this sort of pushback against um, the entrenched incumbents. And, and even like, that's the other thing, like wall street today, like I'm 29, um have a lot of cousins who are younger like coming up it's not as lucrative or as enticing as it once was like those types of returns don't exist for for people in their 20s anymore just interesting to think about it, yeah it's different in that um because at the time in the 80s there were many 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 firms um you had smith barney Payne weber dean witter uh, merrill lynch was still independent and um Anybody could walk off the street and kind of get a job and and work their way up to, to being a broker. You know, there's a lot of stories about like the shoeshine kid at Lehman Brothers who became a broker and became a huge producer. And so now because of all the consolidation, there's only really three or four firms. We don't have Lehman Brothers. We don't have Bear Stearns. Uh, there's only like three or four firms and, and now it's become very um, who, you know, type of thing. Um, it's not. You and you have to go to one of the Ivy leagues. Yeah. It's like my friend from Harvard, Brown or Yale. They, 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 I'm working with them on, on the proprietary trading desk of JP Morgan. Right. So it's, it doesn't have, you, you just don't, you can't have walk-ins because they literally, because when the market exploded in 82, they were shorthanded. They needed bodies on phones because the, 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 there was billions just arriving every single day because there had been a 16 year bear market. So when I started on Wall Street, stockbroker like Payne Weber, half, half the boardroom as they call it, was empty. And they, the business was dead. It had gone 16 years with nothing. So a lot of brokers at that time were working nights as a teachers and taxi drivers just to make a living because you couldn't make a living as a stockbroker. When I started as a stockbroker, people would say, oh, that's too bad, that's a shit job. I guess you couldn't get a good job then. Oh, well, you're an idiot. I worked on a film called Rogue Trader with Ewan McGregor, and mm -hmm. um, he played uh, Nick Nick Leeson, I think it is, the rogue trader that took down Barings Bank, the oldest bank in England. And that was a similar thing. That was in the late 80s, I guess, early 90s. And um, it was the banking system in the UK, which is more like the aristocrats and stuff. It's like 
you know, it was um, only the the poor East End guys who didn't go to college and stuff, they would do like on the floor trading, like give me five, give me 10, give me the, like, you know, that that was considered not respectable for the posh people to do. So they had these uh, East End kids like who hadn't gone to college or anything like that. Those were the guys that were brought in to do all of that sort of explosion and trading that was happening then dealing with, um, billions and billions of dollars in a single trade and that's right. what happened with that bank how that got taken down in that yeah. era that was uh the thatcher's big bang <laughs> yeah of the 80s where they went to a big deregulatory move in the uk as part of the thatcherism so it was reagan thatcher so this big deregulation on both sides of the atlantic and so yeah it attracted a new wave of of spivs as they're called in the in london uh to come in and um and they were just told by like their the Lord 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 such and such who ran the bank, which is like they were like raking in on the profits because they were taking reckless bets all over the world with these huge positions on derivatives trades and futures contracts and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. um but when, when it all fell apart, when one of the bets went wrong, as it kept on going up and the markets kept going up, like they were winning and winning and winning and this is great. And then you had a bad day. I guess it was eighty seven or the Asian crisis, there was something that went wrong <laughs> that it just went wrong like that. Just like when it, uh, long-term capital management also went down like that is like, it, it, it almost took down the entire British economy. Oh yeah. That was the Barings bank collapse was huge, but you know, the wall street bets guys who found that Melvin capital was naked short two times more stock than exists for GameStop. And they went after it with a short squeeze. And uh, it, it exposed some ugly truths about the way hedge funds and banks and Wall Street works is that 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 illeg the illegality of selling non-existent stock and counterfeiting stock and selling it is, is a pretty common practice as a way to manipulate pr prices. And it's really just scratching the surface because if you're working at a brokerage firm like I did for many years, there's so many there's so many accounts in, within the firm, within the office, within the branch, within the national system, within the network that are used with, that are, that exist in a gray area where it's not, there's the regulations don't apply. So when you hear like JP Morgan, I remember a couple of years ago, they said, you know, we've, we've made a money in our trading account for like 180 straight days without a single down day. So mm -hmm. having worked in that industry, I can tell you for a fact that that is the result of fraud <laughs> and the, the result of being able to move. I'll give you one example. So I'll give you one example of how you can do the fraud really easily. So um, you go in to the office, you call the options desk and you buy, let's say, you know, 100 or 200, um, you know, out of the money call options on a stock that's a volatile stock. It's going to have a lot of volatility. Okay. You then go to lunch. You come back from lunch and, and either you have two outcomes, either those calls are wild, you know, profitable or you've got a huge loss. So if you've got a huge profit, it's, it's easy. What, what you do, you, by the way, you haven't given the account number yet for this trade. You just, you, you call, you called the options trader and you said, I put this trade on and I'll give you the account number later. So then if it's in profit, you say, okay, it's going to go into this guy's account. 
for whatever reason. It's not hard to pl place a winning trade. You've got a winning trade. You're going to place a winning trade. You put it where you need to put it. If it's a losing trade, okay, then you call your the, the, the CFO at XYZ Corp who's going to report earnings in two days, and they want to shelter some income with the tax loss. So then you're like, okay, hey, Bob, um, I've just, I'm sitting on a $300,000 loss here. How would you like it? Oh, I'd love it. All right. Give me the account number. Okay, great. So we just, now we're, we're, our earnings just went up by a penny for the quarter, you know, That's or insane. we're going to, right. So I mean, but that, that type of relationship is multiplied up and down the, the corporate stack, CFOs, CEOs, brokers, bankers, money managers, hedge fund managers, like everyone's in on this and they're, it's all, it's all, it's all manufactured. It's all fake. It's all fake. That's crazy. I never knew that part of it. Calling a CFO to another so, branch to harvest tax losses. Uh, just, uh, we only have like 10, 15 minutes because we have to do a Kaiser report too. Oh, okay. Oh. It's like, uh, we've already gone two hours. <laughs> That's Jesus. Important. I lost well, then in 1992. No. Yeah, well, we'll have to do a part two sometime. You know, we had... We waited so long and we had to get so much out, but now we got to go, but we've got to do, we'll do a sequel sometime. No, we definitely have to. I can't believe oh, it's we're so Hollywood. Right. We're so Hollywood. We'd like our sequels. Yeah, we want. <laughs> well, Podcast part two. Yeah, that'd be cool. Home Alone Thank you too. Thank you too for, um, it's been, again, a selfish pleasure on my part, having consumed your content and learning more about your story over the decades has just been incredible and i think it's a great story right I, I, you just going with the flow from comedy in high school to the comic strip it's actually funny i lived on 83rd and second for two years and the comic oh, yeah. strip is not what it was when when you were getting introduced by uh jerry seinfeld and being stuck between Rodney dangerfield and <laughs> and robin williams and i i guess to end it like just from your perspective both of you like what advice would you give to somebody out there like seems stuck on this one track mind? Like you've been all over the world, different industries, comedy, stockbroker, philandering, or not philandering, excuse me, flanoring. <laughs> Jeez, uh, what are you, what are you <laughs> trying to say? Paris, <laughs> well, we didn't know it was this kind of show. It's like Jerry Springer. Wow. Okay. Right. By the way, Stacy, your <laughs> husband, I have some video. <laughs> flanoring, flanoring, excuse me. Um, flaneur, just uh, flaneur. <laughs> flaneur. Yeah. We used to go to a restaurant called Flaneur in London all the time. Remember that? Oh, oh, yeah. On Sundays, they had some amazing apple juice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh no, I think it's a again, it's an incredible story, and I think one that, that people wouldn't have the courage to go explore themselves. So it's just uh, oh. well, you know what? Um, a huge source of inspiration for us is Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony Bourdain always said that, and I believe this is a great advice, is like, whatever you do, just leave. Get out of your hometown, go. Even if it's just across the river, like get out and, and like go somewhere else because it forces you to be like, to empathize, to, be, to understand other people. So the further you can go, the more you can travel, the like going to live in Paris when you don't speak any French, like that's like you're forced to observe, you're forced to um, understand other humans and read other humans and see other societies and cultures and how they operate. And it just doing that, 
invites you to understand yourself more. You under you 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 become more anti-fragile. And I think it's just uh, really important because, you know, in this new Bitcoin renaissance, I think this global community, we're all, you know, we're all post fiat dark ages. And I think we need to start uh, communicating better with each other. And I think, you know, you travel and you're open to experience and the best, it's like, you can't buy that. Like you just have to live it. Well, to our yeah. living it and appreciate all the work that you put in this last decade, particularly to help millions like myself, including myself, um, to, to develop the confidence to, to go against the mainstream narrative and believe in Bitcoin and, Again, thank you for your time. I know we went a little late. I know you guys have a Kaiser report to get to, but uh, <laughs> it's been uh, an incredible conversation. I think the freaks are going to love this one. <laughs> oh, good. We, well, thanks, we like Marty. Thanks for the newsletter. You know, I read it every day. It comes in and uh, it's, it's, it's pithy. It's short. It's informative. And uh, I use it as I, I'm, I'm borrow from it uh, is another way to say uh, I plagiarize from he it. He steals your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for for saying that it's, it's crazy to me that you read it every day and i know you've shared it on the kaiser report a few times as well and i just um yeah that's massive thank you yeah it's a good it's a good newsletter that's only i only read uh, two or three okay max it's time to exit the uh, stage go. it's but time it's, it's time for hopefully we'll see each other you know at that conference in june in miami or whatever uh you know we can uh, sit down and 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 have a face to face that would be cool yeah, you should definitely, I'm going to get there a little early and stay a little late. So if you're doing anything of the same type, we should definitely meet up. We're arriving early as well. So cool. we'll be there. Well, All right, man. Thanks, Marty. We're going to check in with you soon. Peace and love, freaks. Peace, Peace. and love. Peace out.